Welcome back to the sixth season of the Ladybug Podcast. In this episode, we'll be chatting about choosing a tech stack for your project. It's one of the most important decisions you'll make as an engineer. It'll determine many aspects of your app from development speed to scalability to the cost to run it. We'll talk about how to choose technologies from two angles. One from an individual developer's perspective, how do you decide what to learn? And the second from an architectural perspective. How do you decide what technologies to use for your project? Welcome to the Ladybug Podcast. I'm Kelly. I'm Sydney. I'm Allie. And I'm Emma. And we're debugging the tech industry. How often have you struggled to learn programming because you just couldn't find the right resource to suit your learning style? I struggled for nearly a year before stumbling upon a website known as Front End Masters. I've been a long-time paid user of the online learning platform simply because I find the courses to be comprehensive and beginner-friendly. They have the best teachers in the tech industry, and they're one of the reasons I was able to land my dream job. With Frontend Masters, you can learn web development, responsive design, backend development, animations, testing, algorithms, data structures, and more. You can pick a course you're interested in or follow one of the learning paths like React, Vue, Angular, data visualization with D3, Node.js, and more. To learn more, head to frontendmasters.com. Transform your organization's website from brochureware into a powerful business tool with HubSpot's CMS Hub. CMS Hub is a developer-friendly content management system that is fully integrated with HubSpot's CRM platform. This means you can create best-in-class digital experiences for website visitors featuring personalization, automation, and dynamic content based on the same CRM data your sales and marketing teams use to build relationships with customers. Develop powerful websites, blogs, and landing pages locally with the tools and frameworks you prefer, then deploy to your HubSpot account via the CLI. Once deployed, marketers can create and edit content using drag-and-drop and visual design tools, streamlining the workflow between your teams. Take your career to the next level by joining HubSpot's active dev community. Visit developers.hubspot.com forward slash CMS hub and create a free developer test account. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is so exciting. We have another season starting up. We took a little bit of a break, but we're, we're back. Back. back streets <laughs> back. All right. Woo! Yeah! Um, <laughs> Emma. Are we going to get copyright straight? I don't think... I no. See, my problem is that you just told everybody what my Mac password is. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh no. Now I have to change it to different Backstreet well, Boys lyrics. This episode is sponsored by LastFast. Yeah, just you. <laughs> <laughs> Can't now, give away now, free now. sponsorships. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm really excited about this episode. I want to first just start by saying what a tech stack is. And it sounds fancy, but it's really just the set of technologies you use for your app because you normally use a backend language, a backend framework, a database, uh, any sort of processing things, <laughs> cloud provider. And then on the front end, you have the front end framework and then potentially like a UI library and all the other sets of libraries that you might need for your project. And so that all comprises your tech stack. We use tech stack as well in like the e-commerce, like the Shopify space is like, here are all the apps that you have installed on your store as well. Um, so maybe from like a, a more like no code standpoint, uh, this this stack can be used in many different ways in this case. I hate, I hate yeah, the question. Yeah, like, yeah. What's your stack? I'm like, 
HTML. Mm. Like, I don't know. Like, what do you want me to say? Like, every time someone asks me that, I'm like, I don't really work with a full stack. Like, I just work with the front end stuff, which is still a stack in and of itself. It's It's still a stack. It's just like a different kind of stack. I don't know. I feel like when people ask, oh, what's your stack? They're expecting like a fully fledged full stack answer. And I'm like, because what there are so many acronyms for these stacks, like, Mern, I can't even remember. Mean, yeah, like Mern, Mean, Jam. Lamp. <laughs> uh, I I also hate that just question because like I I don't work just with like that specific like initials like Mern or Jam or Mean or whatever it is. Like I've I've done what I've been able to do based on just like preferences of like how I've been influenced based on like what the company needed and like what I was taught. And so from there, I just kind of like, okay, I'm going to like go a little bit into Java because this is exactly what my company needs. And so I'll just go from there. Oh yeah. I was taught JavaScript. So I'm going to start going into whatever Angular is. I hate Angular. Let's go into React instead. All right. React is a little bit more decent. Okay. Maybe view like it's, it's, you're kind of dangerous in a little bit of things and just kind of going from there. So uh, that's just kind of where I am, that kind of generalist thing going on. So I I don't know. <laughs> I think the acronyms are helpful to serve maybe like a guide of like what languages tend to pair well together. Um, if you're just trying to figure out what to learn or uh, you're trying to figure out like I'm building this this app uh, what are other people using? If, if this tutorials using these three languages or libraries, why? And it can, it, they get the, the stacks, these, these pre-configured, I'm using air quotes, their tech stacks can kind of provide as a, as a guide. Uh, if you're just trying to figure out what to learn. For sure. For sure. And they've been things that other people have used, which is something that we'll talk about in a few minutes. They're proven to work well together. It's not like you're going to be doing this all yourself and trying to integrate two things that just nobody's done before. Like you most likely can. There's probably some sort of SDK mm-hmm. yeah. to connect these things, but it could just be a nightmare. Like you could be the person finding all the right. bugs in it because nobody yep. else is doing it. Let's skip the what tech stacks we use then because we've already discussed that that's not the best Thing to talk about since I, I know that I have worked on many tech stacks within my career and that's evolved over time with what languages are more popular, what frameworks are more popular, but also just what different companies have needed. And the nice thing is that a lot of the knowledge from one thing converts to another. But I want to first talk about this from an individual developer. So if you're a new developer, how do you go about choosing what to learn? So if you're teaching yourself, how do you know what to teach yourself? And if you are looking for a boot camp, what are you trying to learn there? And even if you're on the job, but you're trying to transition into a different tech stack, what are the things that you might want to look for? We'll then transition into talking more about how to choose a tech stack for a project, which will be a little bit more of a technical deep dive into the things that you should talk about or you should think about. But let's talk about this first. So I think the first piece of advice here is to just pick something. There's pros and cons to everything that you're going to learn, right? So you're never going to necessarily pick the wrong thing because you'll learn something from that. I I mean, you're probably going to have less job opportunities if you learn brain fuck than if you learn 
React.js, for example. Uh, but on the other hand, you're still learning a programming language and you're still having to challenge yourself. So I would say to pick something, at least at first. Don't get any object syndrome and try to learn every single framework that you hear about on Twitter. Like Instead, pick something and go relatively deep on it because those skills will transfer over. If Svelte doesn't stay popular, like those tool, those skills will probably convert to Vue.js in the future or something along those lines. Like my advice to someone who doesn't know where to start is to pick things that are the most popular or sought after for what you want to do, just because like, honestly, the resources are going to be much more plentiful and you'll probably be able to get more troubleshooting help. And also they're likely popular for a reason, right? They're probably being used widely. And so if you honestly have no idea where to start, that's where I would start. Because honestly, like uh, I remember at IBM, like, I was able to choose whatever framework I wanted to work with on the front end side. And I chose Vue.js because at the time it was rivaling React. It still is, but it was definitely like the new kid on the block. So I chose that. And even though the job I ended up getting was for React, like I kind of knew one that was comparable. So it wasn't that big of a deal. I just learned React on the, on the job. But every stack that I've learned, I've only learned because I needed it at work. I didn't learn it for fun necessarily. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I agree. I had yeah. done the same thing as like a necessary need when I started uh, using React. I started teaching it um, as I was like going along um, with launch code and just like seeing what else that I could do with the projects that I was making to have that front end spin to it, as well as like my dis- disdain for how Angular works outside the box. So that like really pushed me going to the other like frameworks and things that were going on. And honestly, like when you start picking a language that's a little bit more popular, I think that the community that you revolve yourself around gets um, a lot more supportive because there are so many pieces of documentation. There are so many people that are actually talking about the subject. So you're going to have much more easy access to people who are willing to help that are willing to help you solve those problems that are willing to be more than happy to support you in whatever like difficulties that you're going through when it comes to the bugs or trying to problem solve with it. And sometimes when you're building on top of another platform, like take Shopify, for example, um, it's already opinionated. So while you can use whatever you want to build a Shopify app, for example, Polaris, their design system is Uh, it's built on React. It's built using React. So they have the React components for you to use. So usually your admin UI front end is going to be React unless you want to reinvent the wheel and write everything else yourself. Their their tutorial for for building your first Shopify app is going to be, you know, uh, Node, Koa, React, and walks you through setting up all these things. So usually that kind of lends you to lean toward one particular stack or one particular library or language based on what you're building on top of as well. I think one downside though to choosing a popular framework is like to Sydney's point, you'll get a lot of people who are helpful, but on the other side, you'll get a lot of jerks too. Like it just is what it is. Unfortunately, it seems like in any community, there are going to be problems, but I do find in the larger, like React, for example, it's the most popular JavaScript library at the moment, I think still. Um, it was kind of notorious for being a little bit gatekeepy or like, mm. you know, having kind of a negative culture sometimes. 
that's not everyone there, right? There are still so many incredible teachers and people there to help, but just be aware at the larger the community, you're still going to, you're higher likely you will run into jerks as well. I think that was where I was getting stalled uh, on my experience learning Java. Like I was looking at documentation and it was just older documentation because we were working in Java 8. We didn't really update to any other uh, different levels of Java, like Java. What is it? Uh, the more popular one, I think, is is it Java 10, Java 12, whichever one that is. Um, you had a lot more um, limited resources as to what you were doing when it comes to Java 8 from like older people that were doing the documentation that weren't really necessarily participating in any communities. And so that was really hard to actually like discover what people were learning about like different singletons, how how you would do this or that or the third. Um, and going kind of forward into the more modern technologies, uh, it was a lot more friendly, but yeah, the, you kind of have to go with like what makes more sense to what you're mentally feeling with that. But, um, yeah, well, you'll just have to kind of see what works for you and what you like and, um, kind of, kind of go from there, honestly. (laughs) Yeah. So I think there are a couple of things that we've been hinting at. I just want to say them explicitly. So first off, once you get a job, a lot of your learning will be on an as need basis. So what do you need to actually learn in order to be successful at your job? Or what are people recommending to you to learn at work? So that's a big thing once you've gotten the job, and that's very valid. I spend way less time now learning new languages or anything like that than I did early career. So that is very valid. I would also say another thing to look at is job postings near you, because this actually changes a lot regionally. For example, I know Vue.js is much more popular in Europe than it is in the United States, or at least that's historically what the trend is, and in Asia as well. I also know that in the Midwest, we're usually a couple years behind the coasts technology-wise, so you're much more likely to find something in a tech framework that's a couple years old rather than the hot, new, shiny thing. Even when I was living in D.C., the tech stack heavily focused on Python because data was a huge piece of most people's career working in the government. Whereas when I lived in New York City, there was a ton of Ruby on Rails jobs because there were so many startups that had started in the Ruby on Rails pinnacle time. So I would make sure to look at jobs in your region. And I guess that that matters a little bit less now since a lot of jobs are remote, but it's still something to think about is looking at those job postings near you. If you're aim is to get a job, of course. If your job is to just learn programming as a hobby, that's less relevant advice. But I would think about that when you are starting out. Um, You can also look at social media sites like Twitter. Emma was talking about looking into what was most popular at the time. So I would say job postings are a good proxy for that. I would also say social media, things like Dev2. Uh, What else did you look at, Emma, when you were thinking about what was most popular at that time? Uh, I wasn't. I was dating someone who was really into Vue at the time, and I wanted to be relevant <laughs> to him, so I learned it. <laughs> I wish I could. I wish I could say that was a lie, but but to be honest, like he was, he was really up to date in the industry. I really wasn't because I wasn't on Twitter at the time, so like I didn't stay up to date on anything related to programming because it wasn't my life. I didn't care. Um, and so like, I trusted him as my mentor essentially. And like, I was like, oh, okay. Like I trust him. And if I need help, he's there to help me. So that's why I I chose it. Um, but yeah, 
I think, and just a quick note to Ali's point, like um, totally research like the region that you want to get a job in, but research the region you want to get a job in, not where you necessarily are. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a big, I think that (laughs) that for me was like much different because I've always moved really far from home. Like every time I've moved jobs, I've moved countries essentially. So like it's very different in every single geographic location, even between like New York and Texas, where I moved for the first time and then Texas to Germany and Germany to Sweden. It's all very different. So so definitely a really good point. It's not just about the tech stacks either. It's about the resume formats and stuff like like the interview processes are generally the same. We have a whole bunch of episodes on that. Resume is definitely different. And I think we have an entire episode on that as well. So we can link all this stuff in the show notes for y'all, but just make sure you're not only, um, you know, updating your resume appropriately, but that, yeah, you're researching what technology is popular. Yeah. And I think another point that Sydney hit on was thinking about what resources you have available to you and what communities you have that can help you. And so one example, my friend Rick, who started at Devs, which is a really great organization that teaches iOS to formerly incarcerated aspiring developers, they teach iOS because that's who they have the most mentors for. Uh, Not for any other reason than that, really. Uh, Rick is an iOS dev himself, and so his network is mostly iOS devs, and that's who they have to teach. And so if that's something that you have access to, think about that. If there's some sort of group in your city that teaches women women to code, and you're a woman, think about what stack they're using, and maybe that could be something that you could latch onto so that you have that community there as well. You can also think about what resources there are for learning to program for free, uh, what boot camps there are in your city and what they teach. All of these things are relevant and use what you have available to you. Also, choosing a, a language to even start programming in. Okay. Um, I know that I really wanted to start programming in Python and Ruby at one time, just because I thought like, oh, the code looks pretty and it's easy to read. So whether or not I like actually started doing that is kind of irrelevant. The point is, is that my interests kind of started to align with like what exactly that programming language was doing. I thought that Ruby was pretty. I thought that what is it? Uh, Python, it seems like very easy and readable. Um, what else? I stuck with JavaScript because I got that instant feedback that I wanted for the different things that I was trying to do. And I was able to do it instantly with the developer tools. So making sure that you also look into like what aligns with your interests on like what exactly a product that you're trying to make, trying to do, uh, will also be able to help you choose what type of language that you want to actually start in and then branch out from there. Yeah, and I think it also depends on your potential niche that you want to have it within programming too. So if you're somebody who's really into data, then Python has really excellent support for that with things like Pandas. If you're wanting to build web apps, you're probably going to need to know JavaScript at some point. If you like the visual aspect of things, maybe HTML and CSS would be something to good to niche down on. I would think about your interests, what your natural skill set is, and focus on that. If you have some sort of overarching industry that you want to break into, say that that's, you know, working in the government or something along those lines, then think about the tech stack that they're going to use in that industry that will help you break into that. Yeah, I think... I was super overwhelmed in the beginning and I still am sometimes, but mostly in the beginning when I was starting, I was like, 
there are so many freaking tools and technologies and I don't know which ones are which, like which one is a framework, which one's a language, which one is like a build process tool. What the fuck is a build process tool? So like, it's totally normal to be overwhelmed by all that. And I think honestly, one of the things, actually we have a web developer roadmap, obviously it's for web developers, but what we did was we plotted like different technologies and tools with each other on there. So we can link that as well in the show notes. Cause I think, I think visually seeing like, oh, okay. SAS and LESS are both CSS preprocessors and, or like, you know, Bootstrap and Zurb Foundation are, are both CSS frameworks. Like being able to like chunk things into different categories is super useful because you're like, oh, Grunt, Gulp, Webpack. Those are, all, they all can kind of do the same things as task runners. Like you'll become more comfortable with those and you'll get to see like which ones play with which technologies. Cause like, for example, in the past, before like create react app, like I was manually adding like gulp files and building on top of that. And then, you know, create react app integrated webpack configuration. And it was like, oh, okay, now I can switch to this. And it's very normal to like progress through these different technologies as you grow, but it's also confusing as hell. So don't get overwhelmed. For sure. For sure. Maybe even just watching an introductory tutorial in a, a technology that you've learned a lot about will just at least let you know what that thing does, what you can potentially build with that thing. And to be completely clear about introductory tutorials, it does not matter how long you have been coding, whether you're new to programming or you have been in the field for many, many, many years, those introductory tutorials are phenomenal. Yeah. If you find the right person and your preferences, like they're, oh, they're super helpful. What did I do the other day? I was looking at a, uh, Something with GraphQL, I think. Uh, what is his name? Colby something. He works with Angie Jones. Uh, Colby Fayag? Yes, him. I, I recently saw, um, a, what is it, React and Next and um, something else that he was doing uh, with Figma the other day and was just like, I really needed this in my life. So <laughs> we all do it. We all Google. We all use YouTube videos and tutorials. YouTube University up in here. So... I'm just saying, <laughs> just use it to your discretion because well, you need it. I think a good summary point, though, is that you do not need to know everything. Specializing is usually better than trying to learn every single thing that's out there. I know I was so guilty about this when I was just starting off where I would buy tutorials for like C-sharp game development and how to build an app with AngularJS, Vue.js, and React.js or learning all these different backend things and you don't need to know everything. I think specializing in something, especially early on so that you can transfer those skills to the next thing that you learn is going to be more helpful. We often hear from listeners who are looking for a new job and we've got a pretty cool opportunity today for anyone who's interested in joining a fast growing startup. The company is called Geneva and they're hiring iOS Android, front-end, and back-end engineers. So what is Geneva? Geneva is a startup that's building a new group communications app that makes it really easy for people to chat, to hang out, and to stay connected with all of the groups, clubs, and communities in their lives. In a world where everyone is on social media, either yelling at each other or showing off, Geneva gives groups a safer, more private space to have a genuine conversation, make new friends, and build more meaningful relationships. You can think about it as a more modern-day, privacy-focused replacement to Facebook groups, 
or like what Slack would be if it was designed for social groups instead of workplaces. After about two years of building and growing, they now have the backing of some of the top investors in the world, including the co-founders of Reddit, Instagram, and Patreon, and are looking to ramp things up to move even faster. The team is about 42 people, with half based in New York City, and the other half working remotely across the world. So, if you are an iOS, Android, web, or backend engineer, and interested in helping to shape the future of how we all interact and socialize online, check it out. You can learn more at Geneva.com. This episode is brought to you by Dexecure, a company that helps web developers save time by automating repetitive optimization tasks. Images, JavaScript, CSS, HTML, fonts, and even third-party assets. Dexecure optimizes them all with just one line of code so you can focus on what you love doing, building new and exciting websites. No matter the device or browser type, Dexecure will always deliver the best version of your website. Visit dexsecure.com ladybug or enter the code ladybug for one month free when you sign up for any basic or pro plan or try it out with a free account. Okay, awesome. So now we've talked about this from a developer perspective of how do you prioritize these different things and learn them. It's going to be very different depending on where you're at in your career. If you're a senior developer, you're probably going to be learning things that you need to know for work. But if you're a new developer, you're probably going to have to make your own sort of roadmap. So we talked a little bit about that. The second part of this, I now want to talk about how to choose a tech stack. Whoa. I just mispronounced that, how to choose a tech stack for your app. So you're starting from scratch on a new product or you're trying to integrate a new tool into an existing project. How do you choose? So anybody want to start off with what they, what you should think about? Oh, man. Um, like, what are you making this product for? Like, what what does the user or user need? Is it, are you giving back a bunch of data for something? Are you trying to save or upload something onto the internet? Are you making, like, what exactly are you trying to make that's like, is it really extensive? Is it something super simple? Uh, is it, gosh, are you like uploading photos? Like it's, what exactly are you trying to accomplish, I guess, for the user, for yourself? What problem are you trying to solve? I guess would be the first thing that you reflect on for me, at least from my perspective. I would think backwards from the user. So creating some user stories for what you want people to actually be doing with this app or having a product in mind. That's what I would think about. And what are the unique problems that you're going to have as well? If it's something really simple, like you could probably do a no-code solution first, like an Airtable base or something along those lines. But if you have something more comprehensive that's very custom, if you need to process a lot of data or create a timeline or have an extensive design system, that will change your process a little bit. So very much agree with you, Sydney, where you have to think about your use cases first. I think it's also important, and this is something we'll talk about uh, on a later episode um, when you're starting your own business, but what's the what's going to be the future state of this app? Um, what do you expect? You know, How do you expect people to be using it? How many users do you expect to be using it concurrently? Things like that. So you can plan your infrastructure now 
forward the future instead of running into a wall and having to rebuild things just to continue to stay up uh, with the traffic that you're getting. Mm -hmm. We have a whole episode on systems design that talks about horizontal and vertical scaling too, um, and architecture and redundancy. So be sure to check that out as well. Wow. Thank God we have six seasons. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) We can refer to so many episodes at this point. It's so cool. But I would definitely plus one on that. Your architecture is going to look wildly different if you have millions of users versus 10 users, or if you have millions of rows of data versus 10 rows of data. Both of those are use cases that you might see if you're making a conference website. You're probably not going to have a huge amount of data, but if you're building the next Facebook, you're going to have to store a ton of data. And those two forks make it so that you should plan early so that you don't need to migrate off of your tech stack once you grow. I think you also need to determine whether or not you're going to persist user data, like have account information. If you're going to need like two-way data binding, or if it's purely just presentational, like a conference site, you don't need to have user accounts on there, but a Facebook app is literally like you're going to need web sockets and real-time communication and authentication and things of that nature. Yeah. I think another thing to think about is how much time you have and whether you want to build an MVP first. So sometimes you want to build a MVP, which is a minimal viable product, just so that you can get it out to the market. And it won't necessarily need to be in your final tech stack, but just something so that you can validate that this is something that people are actually going to use. So you might want to build a simple version first with maybe a tech stack that you know as a solo developer before you hire on a developer team or something along those lines. So if that's a viable option for you, then think about what tech stack is going to be easiest for you to build something fast. Aiming for an MVP first is also a really great opportunity to avoid edge case hell. That's a good thought. Yeah. Quickly. So people can experiment. Yeah. 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 So people can actually like experiment with the features and see like whether or not this is actually like viable for whatever product that you have. And if it's even important, like if it's a part where the user's like, I don't use this, like what is this? You can at least like kind of go back and see where else you can potentially refactor that code, use it as um, a newer type of feature, like a newer version of the feature. Um, Gosh, what else? Uh, If you need to, you can eliminate it (laughs) if you need to, and then kind of go back and see like what other newer features can actually replace uh, what you've made based on the user's feedback. So yeah. Yeah. You can spend so much time worrying about what one potential user might encounter or how they might use the app or something like that. Uh, and spend all your time trying to cater a solution to every individual user instead of the the mass of who will be using it. So I'm a really big fan of MVPs. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, that being said, if you have some other way to validate your product, maybe you don't need an MVP. And so or you probably need an MVP, but you might want to make that MVP in a tech stack that's closer to something that you would want to scale with. So something to think about. So I think that all of that conversation links back to thinking through your own app. What are you building? What are the requirements that you have? How much time you need? And how you want to scale this in the future? The next thing that I want to talk about is the engineering resources that you already have. Especially when you're starting out, your engineers are going to be your most expensive asset. So what do they know already? So if you're a solo developer on this, what is the language that you know? 
if you're working on a small development team or even a bigger development team, what are the technologies that they're bringing to the table? You probably want to use something along those lines because think about how long it's going to get take to get them to be an expert on a new technology. It can happen. It's valid if you need to for some reason. That's very much a thing that can happen. That being said, you're spending a lot of money to get them to that place. So maybe think about what they already know and use that knowledge. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, like if your team doesn't know a technology and they have to learn it, that's going to cost you a lot monetarily, whether you realize it or not for them to learn. And and also, do you really want to build an entire application on a technology nobody's familiar with? Because what happens when something crashes and it's time sensitive and you're losing money? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, do you want to use their years and years of experience on this thing that they're an expert on? Or do you want to make them learn something Mm -hmm. new and not take advantage of all that expertise? Do it my way and my way only. I just hired uh, two (laughs) engineers for the super secret app that my friend and I are building right now. And part of that, of course, is data security. And that is absolutely not my area of expertise whatsoever. So I was very clear that you use whatever you think is going to be best in this situation and whatever whatever you're most comfortable with, whatever you're most confident using. And I will learn as I go. I will say though, like if your engineers only know Dojo and it's, or like it's a deprecated technology. Okay. That's a different scenario. We're talking about like, if your engineers know Vue and you wanted to build it in React, don't force them to learn React, even if it's, you know, they're, that is ridiculous. But like, seriously, like if, if your engineers only know Dojo or jQuery or something, but you need a fully fledged enterprise modern application that's responsive. Okay. That's a different story. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Look, not one of these things is the only thing that you should think about. It's just a set of questions you can ask yourself in order to weigh the different pros and cons of something mm-hmm. I would say. Right. The cool. trade-offs for like using a legacy framework are going to be way worse and like it's actually better to spend the investment to train your your team to learn this you know newer framework in the long run it's going to be better for your business than using what they already know so yeah yeah for sure another thing to think about is front end back end communication so you could use something like graphql to make that communication faster if you only have front end devs you could use something like aws amplify to make it so that your app can be more front-end focused. If you have only back-end engineers, maybe you want to use something to make front-end development easier, like Bootstrap or something along those lines. So one example that I have from my experience is that I was a full-stack solo dev on a project a bunch of years back, and GraphQL made my life so much harder because I was building this GraphQL backend, and then I was also the person consuming it, which kind of goes around the point of GraphQL. GraphQL (laughs) really aids in the process of making that front-end, back-end communication faster. So as a dev working on a larger team, GraphQL is amazing and the best thing ever. But if you're the only dev on that team right then, it's probably overkill. Depending on, of course, what tech stack you're using, and it all comes back to this. Right. Oh my gosh. Uh, what other like examples that you guys can think of when you had to be solo on a developer project? Because my first quote unquote tech job 
I was at an advertising company and it was me trying to figure out how to make this like registration app with Mongo. And I knew that the person wanted a specific feature where like there was some like animation going on with like our images. And so I was like, oh, maybe we should try React with it. That was hell on earth. That that was so hard to do. And I was still learning. So like that had me like in a spin where I was just like, I need to learn React. I need to do this. I need to know that. As well as like helping other people that were still trying to figure out like what exactly they wanted when it came to the application. That like, I hope I never have to do again. <laughs> I started learning Ruby on Rails uh, probably three, four years ago, maybe um, because I wanted to build, I, I, I needed to build like a custom Shopify app for a client. And it was back when I was still freelancing. And the first tutorial I came across was, for building an app, a Shopify app in Ruby on Rails. And I stumbled my way through somehow making it work. And to this day, I still don't understand how I managed to do it. Classic. Uh, but it's also the last you, time that I ever touched you Ruby You literally built a whole ass house with Elmer's glue. <laughs> <laughs> You're a boss bitch, Kelly. That's how you got through it, okay? And then she quit. The site is no longer running, so it yeah. doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Oh, no. I swear I didn't break it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we already talked about how your engineer journey is your most expensive asset to think about what they already know. But to plus one on this, also think about when you're adding something new, think about the cost of that and the added complexity. So for example, if you already have a Rails app and you want to add a Python feature, how badly do you need that feature that's in Python instead of Ruby, because that's added complexity that's going to make it so that there's another language that you have to hire engineers for. Or if you're already using Redis, do you really need to add, you know, some other queuing service as well? Just think about every time that you add a new technology, it just adds the learning curve and is going to make the app more complex. So it's very true that you might need this new thing, but try to keep it so that you're using a handful of technologies rather than 80 bajillion. <laughs> I love that. That'd be a lot. <laughs> Using all the technologies. That's such, <laughs> I mean, honestly, it. that's true. I see a lot of times like people will just be throwing shit in there. Like it's freaking like, I don't know. The first phrase that came to mind is like a Sunday soup where you've got all your leftovers and you just throw into a soup. I don't know where that came from. That's not a thing. I just made that up, but it is a thing now. No, um, that's totally a thing. Cool. People, people do that all the time. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Like leftovers. Fabulous. Yeah. We used to do that. I, I see this all the time. It's like, <laughs> do you really need like bootstrap and SAS? Probably not. Pick one. Um, I think the biggest misconception is like evaluate which type of technology is going to be the best for you. Like what's the difference between a preprocessor and a framework, right? Like a framework is going to give you a pre, like most of them have opinions on how an application is styled. So Bootstrap was created by Twitter. And typically if you use Bootstrap, you can tell what a Bootstrap site is. They all look and feel like the Twitter UI, but you don't have to worry about accessibility, responsiveness, et cetera. Those things are built in for you. Like a preprocessor gives you a set of tools such as variables, nesting, mixins, things like that, um, that solve a lot of problems that plain CSS didn't previously. Now it's starting to, but there, there are two huge differences here, right? Because SAS is not opinionated on styling and it doesn't out of the box give you the tools that you need to make a responsive and accessible 
web application, but it gives you more freedom and things of that nature. So you really need to sit down and determine, okay, like, do I need a, a framework and or, or a preprocessor? Like, what's the difference? Why would I need one over the other? Do that with all of your technology choices. For sure. For sure. So we've talked a little bit about your project, what you need to think about with your project. We also should think, though, about the framework or language or technology and thinking about whether it is production ready. So there's so many things out there that are in like beta or whatever. And I would say that you probably don't want to be the first person using a tool in production because that's going to make it so that you're the person finding bugs in it. You're the one who is on that line of support. And so obviously some person at some point has to be the first person, but it doesn't have to be you. (laughs) So I would definitely think about that. I would make sure that other people are using that technology first and hopefully a wide subset of people, not just one person. Normally, if anyone wants to build a new app using my uh, the alpha version of my my new library called Noodle Script, let me know. Ooh, I like that name. Have a spaghetti script. script. <laughs> it's literally like you start typing characters and it just like button mashes the keyboard for you and you can, it's not legible at Whoa. all. It's beautiful. Oh, okay. It also doesn't work. <laughs> Great. That's what you want. <laughs> That's why it's still an alpha. <laughs> you're serious for a second for whatever reason (laughs) (laughs) love it moving on let's talk about the difference between open source software and enterprise software because i think this is something people don't normally at least i don't normally think about um i think so basically open source software is software that is uh, accessible to the community to help build and fix um react is an open source javascript library right is it open source yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. They have a core team that works for Facebook, but then they also accept community contributions. And Right. Yeah. Right, right. And this is great because, I mean, it's great for many reasons. The more diverse developers you have working on something, um, the more accessible it's going to be for everyone. Um, yeah. But at the same time, you're then constrained by the capacity of, you know, the community and the core team. Um, so, but enterprise software, while it potentially could be more fully fledged, you're also bound to them to some extent, like you're relying on them for updates. And I don't know, legally, do they have a stake in your product at that point? Usually not. It depends on your contract. Um, but the same thing is true for like open source licenses and stuff. Like they could hypothetically put some really weird shit in that open source license and they could own your product. <laughs> it just depends on the the agreement. It's almost like you should read the terms and conditions sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it's bit. an interesting conversation because so much of what we use on a daily basis is open source. And I think that that's amazing. These things are built by the communities and they're built by these developers. But some of these projects, you're relying on some random person who this is their side project. That's not true for every single piece of open source software, but isn't there a framework out there or library where the um, maintainer like went to prison and now nobody can update the library? This is, yes, I'm pretty sure this is a thing, but then there's also another one where the, I think this was with, Lodash, he decided to like travel around the world. And so then they like forked it to be, 
or it was underscore JS, and then they forked it to Lodash because the guy mm. went and traveled the world. And so interesting. In the, and then there was also the uh, left pad too, where left pad was this JavaScript library that just added a bunch of spaces before words, and that got hacked, and like every library was using it. And so you have to think about you're using these community-built projects, and sometimes there can be security issues with that. You're also relying on a community. I guess like kind of moving into the topic of community, um, making sure that, uh, like we've said before, that there are people that are actually going to be supporting whatever this product is uh, on a very timely basis, as well as making sure that um, while you're actually trying to use this product, you're able to at least like contact people in an easy way, in an easy manner to make sure that you're able to solve these problems quickly and not being the first one to contribute. And then you're the person, you're that like resource that people go to as people keep like building and building on those uh, things that they're trying to solve when it comes to those problems and bugs and things. So that just, that sounds awful. (laughs) Welcome to your new job. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I looked it up. It was CoreJS. The maintainer, which is used 26 million times a week, got in a motorcycle accident and killed somebody. And so now he's in oh my jail. God. And so now CoreJS like, has all these issues. So just something to think about when you're choosing open source software is maybe making sure that there's multiple maintainers so that if something happens to that maintainer that somebody else can have access to it. Another thing that I would suggest doing is just looking at the issues tab. Look how many open issues there are and if they are being worked on. So if there are open bugs or security issues or anything like that, make sure that those are being worked on and it's not just a dead repo because there are a bajillion repos on GitHub that nobody has touched in 10 years. I I have like school projects on there. Make sure that you're not using somebody's school project for your enterprise project. Oh God. (laughs) Or if you are like, make sure to fork it first. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) What else should we be talking about? I I think uh, maybe the next thing that you should be considering um, is, is there a way to actually be able to test out your code? Uh, making sure that you have these adjacent technologies to uh, make sure that your product is clean, make sure that it works, make sure that you're testing its usability every single time that you're actually adding a new feature, adding new lines of code. What else? Uh, um, gosh, making sure that it's responsive, just like every kind of thing in the book that you're wanting to make sure that you do to actually like test to maintain your code. Um, Finding different ways to make sure that you're polishing whatever you have, whatever your like final result is. Yeah, I think just that there's a community around that thing where you can do all of the, I'm saying things a lot, but that you can do the things that you need to. (laughs) So for example, with React, there's Jest and there's React testing library and all of these things that you can use to test React apps. Whereas if you're using a brand new shiny JavaScript library, maybe that ecosystem hasn't evolved yet. And so you might be in the wild west for that. And so that's something to think about too, is if there are all these supporting technologies that you can use within that uh, technology itself. Yeah, that makes sense. 
I think another thing that I look at when I'm going to work with the technology is the documentation because I'm definitely like a, I don't know what the right word for this is like a not visual learner, but I, I learn by reading really well. So if the, uh, technology doesn't have good documentation. So when I was learning Dojo, my first job straight out of college, I was miserable. Their docs were horrendous. And I know it's an older technology, but like Sydney, you mentioned before, the Java docs were like much older and, and all of those things. Um, that's a deal breaker for me because I, especially if it, 100%. like, especially, so Java has been around for a long time, right? But the amount of modern tutorials on it are dwindling because people have found like Node.js or like other technologies to use. Um, so good docs is it, it like does the technology care enough about their technology to help their users use it? I think that's a big thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Developer experience is absolutely important and in, in one of the keys uh, keys to my decision making for sure. For sure, and I think that that extends to docs. I have a story of when I was a newer developer. I was working at a startup who loved the appearance of Ant Design, which is a design system that was originally implemented by people in China. And so it looks great, but the docs were only in Chinese at that point. And so I had to use Google Translate on every single page in order to figure out how to use it, which doesn't translate all that well, especially for technical terms. So it was incredibly hard. And that makes it so that it is really, really time-consuming to build something relatively simple. And so think about whether the documentation is going to allow your developers to move fast because, again, your developers are your most expensive asset. And so think about that. Are they going to have a good experience? And in addition, this is also a really good way to attract engineers to your team. If you're using a really unattractive tech stack, uh, maybe most developers aren't going to want to use it. But if it's something that has really good developer experience, that's going to keep people on your team and attract them to it. Can I tell you, like, as someone who interviews for Spotify, one of the main questions we get from interviewees is what tech stack we use. Yeah. Like, like eight times out of 10, that is a question. And that's a great question to be asking in interviews, by the way. Um, but it is a, a very big deterrent or attractor for candidates. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think about me personally and my point in my career, like, do I want to be working on a legacy .NET or COBOL app? Like, I I don't, to be honest. I kind of want to work within the set of technologies that I'm interested in. And so I think that's an important thing to think about. Uh, another thing would be stability is most technologies are going to have versions and they're going to update things from version to version, which is super important, like React adding hooks or something along those lines. But you want it to be backwards compatible. You want to make sure that when they're releasing new versions, that you're not going to have to rewrite your whole entire application. And I think the example that I think of the most with this is Elm, which is a front-end language that is functional and it transpiles to JavaScript. Um, but it wildly changed between versions. And I used it on a hobby app and trying to find the correct answers on something like Stack Overflow because everything was in a previous version and it was really, really, really difficult to find the most recent version. So nothing online kept working. And so that's something to think about is there's stability between these different releases so that your app isn't going to have to be rewritten every time that there's a new version. Yeah. And, and there are definitely going to be times when breaking changes will need to be introduced 
And it, I, it's really important for me to have enough of like a runway to work towards implementing whatever breaking change is occurring. So my app just doesn't stop working one day because I didn't, I was only given like three weeks to build something. Yeah. Like the Python 2 to Python 3 conversion was years. Like there was warnings that things were deprecated and then, or the introduction of new features and then warnings that old features were deprecated and then finally removal of those old things or stop maintenance of those older things. So that's a great process to follow that uh, everything just doesn't break overnight. (laughs) That's the worst. (laughs) (laughs) Not asking for much. That makes sense. Uh, Moving on, I guess. So we want to make sure that we're also talking about the little technical bits of going into choosing a tech stack too for your app, right? So um, how are you going to be able to maintain this as it grows? Uh, like, what are you going to be doing? Is it going to be easy to maintain with potentially one person going from whatever versions, whatever features that you're updating? Will that be nice to do? Because that sounds like a headache to me, especially if you're doing like little hobby projects or if you're like doing something that you think might be commercial, if you're uh, trying to expand on whatever it is that you're doing with like a quote unquote company that you're trying to establish with this app, uh, (laughs) you're going to need to make sure that you're doing a lot of research on how you'll be able to maintain this product as it grows, as you're building traffic to your site as you're uh, moving on to different features as you're growing. So uh, how how exactly would you be able to start kind of looking into how you would maintain that? Was it Would it be like potentially looking at different like frameworks that you would use to kind of like change up what the style is? Maybe uh, potentially like looking into uh, different languages for different features? Like what, what do you guys think? Well, I think my thoughts process here was that as your code base expands, it's important that mm-hmm. more and more developers can contribute to that application. And so... Oh, a lot yeah. easier. Yeah, so okay. for example, frameworks are built in order to help with this because if you're using... Okay, for example, if you have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of lines of just HTML code, the thing with that is, is that it could be really, really great for performance for your application. So there's definitely benefits to that. That being said, if you want to change something within your app, you're going to have to change it in every single place that that thing happens within that HTML. If you use something like React instead or JavaScript to generate some of your UI code, that will make it so that you only have to update the code in one place if you have commonalities. Uh, At least if you're writing React code properly, you should only have to update that in one or two places rather than all the different places that it occurs. And so... UI frameworks like React are built to help with that, but also things like Ruby on Rails enforce uh, structure for your backend. And so most Rails developers, if you hire a new Rails developer, they're going to be able to be onboarded to that project and understand where things are located within the code base. Whereas if you started from scratch and just wrote your app in vanilla Ruby, you're not going to have that same structure enforced and you're going to be doing a lot yourself. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. What else should we be doing uh, technical bits wise? Um, scalability is another thing that we have down. Um, will this thing scale with you? Especially 
important for databases when you're actually um, putting in like maybe registering new users, actually physically storing data, distributing, processing data, um, making sure that you're able to account for the amount of data that you're going to be storing, that you're going to be distributing, how much traffic is going to be on that particular app, website, whatever. Um, figuring out like how exactly you can balance whatever load that you're kind of taking on when it comes to the users, depending on the feature too. I think. Yeah. So I think here is where I'll refer everybody to the databases episode that we'll be releasing later this season. Very excited for that. Yeah. Spoilers. <laughs> uh, but also to the systems design episode that we had a couple seasons ago. So we keep referencing that. I feel like it's very relevant for this episode. But you want to make sure that your app can scale with you. We again hinted at horizontal versus vertical scaling. Are you going to be able to add more memory to your or CPU to your existing system? Or are you going to be able to add additional servers to? it. Uh, thinking about that is really important, especially with your database, making sure that you're not going to be capped out at a certain number of rows or that you're not going to be capped out at a certain number of columns if you need more columns. So think about that. Um, in addition, related, the cap theorem, you can only have the two out of the three consistency availability and partition tolerance. You have to think about which one you can sacrifice, and most databases are going to choose one that it sacrifices for you. So think about which one oh, you can sacrifice. If you want something that's available offline, for instance, you would need to have availability within it. Um, if you want to have a really, really large-scale app, you need partition tolerance. So you can't sacrifice that. And so eventual consistency is the most common thing that's sacrificed, but it's something to think about. If you need your app to be very, very consistent, then you'll have to sacrifice availability or partition tolerance. I have a question. Can you expand on what each of those are? Yeah, for sure. So availability is making sure that you always get a response. So if your app is offline, you're still going to get a response. That You see that a lot with online offline systems, right? Um, consistency means that every single user of the app is going to get the same data at the same time. So as soon as the database updates, everybody has that access to the same exact data. And so everybody's seeing that at the same time. Uh, partition tolerance is that you can have multiple partitions to your system. So you can store some of your data on one server and some of your server on another, or your some of your data on another server. If you have a front end, you automatically have two partitions because you have your back end server and then your front end that's pulling your data. And so these are things that you want to think about here. Um, another thing to think about is speed. So making sure that your performance is good for end users and for data processing. You don't want your engineers to be stuck processing data all the time. You also want your end users to have something that's snappy and feels good to them. We've done a whole performance episode as well, but that's something that you want to think about here. Uh, tools that require a lot of JavaScript are going to add some bulk to your application, and it's going to make that a little bit slower for some users. But then again, it's going to help with that maintainability process that we just talked about. So think about what you can sacrifice. Um, also, appearance. Do you use a CSS library or UI components? Do they look good and fit your brand aesthetics? I have never worked at a startup that has a designer. So a lot of times you're using a CSS library in order to do the designer's job for you. Maybe not great, but something to think about. Oh, geez. Yeah. That One thing I'd recommend, like if you don't have a solid design team, is to use something like Chakra UI. Um, 
because it's not super opinionated in how it's styled, but it gives you accessibility and um, like responsiveness out of the box. It still allows you to add your own custom branding on top of it. But yeah, if you're going to use a fully fledged design system like IBM Carbon, your product's going to look like IBM. If you use, you know, uh, Bootstrap again, it's going to look Everyone like Everyone knows when you visit a Bootstrap website. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or Tailwind at this point. I feel like a Tailwind's the new one. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's not necessarily a bad thing either. And no non-developer is going to be able to recognize that. So it's really just... Yeah, and yeah. for what it's worth, the patterns in UI means there are patterns in the UX as well, which means people are, tend to have an inherent understanding of how to operate your website. Or yeah, app. definitely, yeah. definitely. And they look at least at a, a baseline professional too. So it's not like <laughs> there's comic sans everywhere or anything like that. Oh, God. Okay, cool. So we talked about the technical things that you should think about whether the framework or language is production ready, the engineering resources that you have and your individual business logic that you need to have. Another couple random things to think about are vendor lock-in. Kelly, is this a conversation that you ever have with Shopify? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we have, so there are a number of uh, like tools that, you know, Shopify is a managed host. You can move your data, you can export your data from Shopify to migrate to a different platform. But there are certain apps that you might use or services you might use within Shopify or within another platform that you are no longer going to be able to remove that data. Um, I think a really good example of this is product reviews. Um, uh, what is it called? Uh, there's a certain reviews app that they own your data. You cannot export your data from them. So they will forever own your product reviews. Uh, oh this vendor lock-in sucks. And it can it, it can really hinder your process moving forward if at some point uh, Trustpilot, that's what they're called. Um, if you're building a Shopify store, don't use Trustpilot for your reviews. This has been not <laughs> sponsored by them. Um, please don't come after me, but I have opinions. Anyway, I'll just stop there because I'm going to just keep on ranting about Trustpilot. <laughs> no, there you go. I think this is a very common concern is are you relying heavily on one technology? If that technology fails, are you screwed? And is that technology actually stable enough to, to stay on there? So for example, if you're using a cloud vendor, make sure that that cloud vendor is going to be around in five years as your app scales. It's not going <laughs> to be shut down or anything along those lines uh, because then you're going to have to rewrite your app in order to use a new cloud provider and that's a lot of time. So think about vendor lock-in, especially if you're using something that's a little bit less proven. Uh, budget. This is a huge one. How much money do you have to spend? Do you have a big budget to hire a bunch of developers or do you have a very small budget, how are you going to pay for hosting and how much can you pay for that hosting? Uh, all of this is really, really important to think about. If you are writing a super, super complex app that only senior plus developers can work on, it's going to be really, really expensive to keep hiring people to work on that. Whereas if you can onboard some junior developers onto it, then you're going to be able to have maybe a more scalable ecosystem. But then again, like, doesn't Netflix only hire senior developers? Yeah. 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 Not great. We can have a whole another conversation it's, about that. It's a great app, but I wish more places would just hire junior developers. It makes my life easier with my students and 
it's it's definitely a lot it's a lot to explain when it comes to like why isn't anybody hiring and uh, I don't like that conversation. This, this has been a conversation on our team because our team is very senior heavy. Like I'm one of the most junior people on the team and I'm not a junior. And we've brought this up where like we've said, we need more junior developers because they keep us accountable and they keep our, our skills sharp. And just because someone's a junior doesn't mean that they're not an effective developer. Not at all. Um, and that's not to say Spotify still hires like junior developers, yeah. interns, et cetera. It's just that like our team who builds desktop and web app are very senior and it's like, okay, it's time to branch out. And I think they're, they've actually taken that and we're going to actually move forward with that. But yeah, I can't stand comp- companies that only hire senior. It's like, what do you think you're better than other people? I don't. Yeah. You got to foster people at some point. Um, and there's also huge valuable reason to hire those junior devs too, so that you have everything documented and you have a architecture that other people can work on. So definitely something to think about if you're writing maybe a COBOL app, you're not going to be getting a lot of like bootcamp grads that can work on your your app, for example. Um, Also think, is this a momentary trend or a long-term one? I'll link in the show notes, a really great talk that's called Choose Boring Technology. So I think a lot of us lived through the 2015, Mm, 2016 JavaScript framework of the week era where (laughs) uh, JavaScript frameworks were just starting to be a thing and there seems to be a new hot one every other week. Um, And a lot of those died out. And so just making sure that you are investing in things that are going to stick around so that you don't need to do a migration really quickly onto a new platform because you picked something that nobody's using after a month. That makes sense. Oh, that at the time when I was like actually starting to learn to code, like I I was overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed having to see like what frameworks are out there and yeah, I hated that. That made me like not want to learn anymore. (laughs) It was just too much. Yeah. It was too, too much. For sure. It was really hard to know what would stick at that point, too. Um, And it's still hard, but maybe, again, waiting around so you're not the first person using something in production is the way to go. And that there's a big ecosystem behind that because the community is important. So a couple caveats before we move off of this is that you aren't stuck with your tech stack. So we've given a lot of things to think about throughout this episode when you are choosing your tech stack, but it's not like it's set in stone. You can change in the future, and a lot of big companies have. For example, Twitter started on Ruby on Rails, and then they moved off of it once it no longer supported their needs. Things are going to change over time, and even though a migration off of a technology is expensive, it is something that can happen. And in fact, at some point, it becomes really expensive to stick with an outdated stack. Anybody remember at the beginning of the pandemic when they needed a bunch of COBOL programmers in order to work on the unemployment systems? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> those... We call this the sunk cost. Right, balance. exactly. Yeah. So at some point, you're going to probably have to change tech stacks no matter what, things just evolve over time. That's how things are. Uh, jQuery is an amazing piece of technology. That being said, if you're building a new app this day and age, it probably isn't your best bet. Things have kind of moved on from that because of the main maintenance aspect of it. Unless you're on Shopify. Uh, <laughs> no, jQuery is so much fun. I, know. I, I kind of <laughs> miss the jQuery days, to be honest. 
I do too. I'm not going to lie. I <laughs> it's, it's like, it took me a while to learn vanilla because I had just been doing jQuery for so long because of uh, oh, I didn't, building uh, Shopify things. I didn't know jQuery wasn't JavaScript. Yeah, that's just what I thought. Uh, I know JavaScript. I wasn't, I, I know I wasn't taught that in my computer science degree that like jQuery was not JavaScript. It's cool. It's, we also we also learned PHP. So, you know. Oh, no. <laughs> um, I think one big note is that literally every t- company is going to have a different tech stack. Like I've worked with so many freaking technologies, languages, etc. In the three companies that I've worked at, even within IBM, I was working with Dojo, Angular, Vue, React. Um, just at one company. And so just, there's not one answer. So just, you know, yeah, there's not, you're going to learn different stacks throughout your career. You just have to, I, I think the biggest like deterrent or not deterrent, but determine, determinator, deter- maybe Is that a word? you were going to say deterrent and we were like, the, no, that's not the, it. Okay. <laughs> determinator. You, you know what I mean? Like the biggest determining factor but i like determinator the biggest determinator of whether or not you're going to be successful in tech is whether or not you enjoy learning in my opinion you have to like learning and if you can like if you enjoy learning then you know you'll be fine yes and and just to drill this in you don't need to know every single thing on a on a company's list of uh, like their tech stack on like a job application in order to apply for sure for sure um one other thing to plug is stackshare.io. You can go on there and see the stacks that different companies are using. I think it's really interesting just to, again, hit home that every company is using something else, different. There isn't one right answer with this. There are just trade-offs. So you need to think about the trade-offs that you're willing to take for something, whether it's developer speed or actual performance for your app. Like all these things are important to consider, but there's no one right answer. There's just going to be pros and cons to any decision. So Stackshare.io is a great site to actually see what different companies are using. Well, this was a big episode. We talked about a lot within this. <laughs> we really stacked it in there. Yeah, we really stacked it up. Oh, oh no. Dad jokes. Let's do some shout outs. Emma, you're up first. Um, so this is a book that came as a recommendation when I posted on Twitter that I was reading Algorithms of Oppression, which is a really great book about how Google, it's like that was a research study about how Google um, like the algorithm of Google can kind of reinforce racism. Um, so I posted that I was reading that and someone said, you should check out algorithms to live by. And it, I, I did, I bought it. I haven't read it, but I'm still shouting it out. And essentially it's an exploration of how insights from computer algorithms can be applied to everyday life, life tasks, um, helping you solve common decisions. So that is mine. Uh, how about you, Sydney? Yeah. So, um, Shout out to the Twitterverse. Uh, there's no particular reason. You all, you all are just awesome. Uh, I, I really love the debauchery that's like happening every day. And uh, just I, that that's all just debauchery. Just all the fun stuff that I've been like looking at has been making things feel easier as I'm like looking and interviewing and all that fun stuff. So shout out to you guys. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yes. How about you, Kelly? So my shout out is to all of you lovely listeners. Uh, this podcast would not exist if it wasn't for all of you listening to us today. Yay. And Emma is typing things into our... Uh, I, I'm just assuming it's Emma because who else would it be? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm, I'm saying that Kelly is a simp queen for shouting out the listeners, but in reality, I'm just oh being, I'm being cheesy because reality of it is, yeah, like we definitely wouldn't be here without you. Wow. Or thanks for stealing my shout maybe, out. Maybe we would. Maybe we would just be screaming into the void, but. <laughs> oh, I was just going to scream into my microphone. That's probably not the best idea. <laughs> no, don't do that. Allie, what about you? Mine is for Getaway. Mine's a little less relevant, I guess. So Getaway has a bunch of these really cute cabins in the woods. They have them like an hour and a half to two hours outside of most major cities. So I did that this weekend. Super cute. The walls are glass, or at least one of the walls is glass. And so you just are like looking at trees and it's really pretty. So would recommend. Sounds sounds nice. Yeah. That sounds amazing. I'm going to look that up. But that's what I need for my, like, birthday vacation yeah. after this move. Just, <laughs> that sounds definitely. amazing. They definitely have one outside of Atlanta, too. So. Cool. Ooh, yay. Good. Again, welcome to season six. We are so excited to be back. If you like this episode, go ahead and tweet about it. We'll select one tweeter to win uh, Egghead IO account. So be sure to tweet. We post new podcasts every Monday, so make sure to subscribe to be notified and leave a review. We love you. Thank you. Ladybug's back. All right. Bye.